Matthew chapter 6 introduces a, a different portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be discussing for the next three weeks until we enter into yet another portion of Jesus' sermon. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be discussing what I would like to call the secret life. The life that not everybody sees or is supposed to see. When we are alone, in private, we are our truest selves. When we are among people, we tend to bend and shift a little into something that has the best chance of fitting in with our peers. It's just natural. It's what everybody does, even just a little bit. Or into the setting that we're in. For instance, do you think I wear a tie every day of the week? In fact, I'll I'll be open and honest with you. I never wore ties except for funerals or weddings until I came here. Just wasn't me. Never liked them. In fact, I still don't like wearing ties. It makes me too hot. (laughs) Um, But... We bend and shift a little to, to match the surrounding that we're in or the people, the expectations that we know we're going to be around, no matter, regardless of where we're at. Often we desire to fit in with those around us, and sometimes our desire goes in, goes beyond fitting in to being glorified and being held in high esteem by those around us. But when we are by ourselves, That is when we put on the baggy sweatpants. We let down our hair. Women, anyway. (laughs) Um, We take off the tie. Wipe off off the makeup. We become our truest selves. Not just externally, but also in how we treat each other. It's often said in in marriage books that your spouse is the person that you're the meanest to. (laughs) You're not mean to people in public because you don't want to be seen as the mean person. You want people to accept you. But your spouse, they've already accepted you. So you're free to be mean (laughs) to your spouse where you wouldn't be like that to even your own enemy. Why? Because when we're in the comfortable setting, we are our truest selves. Over the next three weeks, we'll be seeing three different elements of the secret life. Today, we're going to be talking about charity. Works of mercy. Next week, we'll talk about prayer. And the week following that, we'll talk about fasting. That'll be exciting. How many of us know a whole lot about fasting? I'm actually looking forward to that message. Uh, But this is following Christ's order here in Matthew chapter 6. And you have to, and I, while I was writing this, I was wondering, why in the world did Jesus choose these three items to describe the secret life? Truly, there are lots of different things that we do or should do in secret, things that shouldn't be flaunted or public. Why this? Why works of charity, prayer, fasting? Nobody talks about fasting. But these three items, as we're going to see unfold over the next few weeks, represent opportunities for the truest intimacy with God. Though they are often used to gain a reputation among men, as we're going to see that the Pharisees were doing in this, in this day. These three elements in their most sincere state draw us into the presence of the Most Holy and open up our souls to experience true, deep, 
blessedness from God. This is why it's important for us to learn about these things, to see the biblical instruction behind these things, because Jesus is telling us about the secret life where true blessedness and true true glorification for God are the most sincere. And this secret life of man is perhaps the only place on earth where there are no hypocrites. Just to be a hypocrite is to be around your peers. And we'll talk about that here in a second here. Look at chapter, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read the first few verses here. Verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise... You have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward himself or will reward you openly. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the true blessedness of the secret life. Lord, I pray that there would be no hypocrite among us who puts on a facade to be seen by men where deep down inside there is there's nothing to provide a foundation for it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to value a relationship with you, to value intimacy with you, to to value reward from you more than we value anything from any person, whether it's adoration or gifts. Lord, humble us so that our greatest delight might be in walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to discuss with you this word hypocrite. Most of us understand that it has a pretty negative connotation. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite. If somebody comes up to you and says, you hypocrite, you don't like that. That stings. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. In fact, that's something that we always look, we always get uneasy about because the outside world often blames the church for just being a bunch of hypocrites. Goody two-shoes. And we have a general sense of what a hypocrite means. I want to go into it a little bit here. The word hypocrite is a transliteration of the Greek word hypokritai. Transliteration meaning it's basically the same word, just in a more English way. Hypocrite, hypokritai. Sounds similar. Transliteration. And it literally means to answer back. Other Other meanings are to give people what they want to hear. It's also referred, or also is a word that refers to actors. When somebody is acting the part of Shakespeare, they're not really Shakespeare, but they're playing the part. The people looking at the person see him dressed as Shakespeare. He's speaking the words, or, or, some, or a Shakespearean, um, uh, what do you call it? Play. Hamlet. I'm not Hamlet. But I look like him when I'm acting, when I'm playing the part of the actor. I'm saying his words, even though that's not me. 
But the word is also used to refer to a translator. Think about that. What is the job of a translator? Has anybody ever had a translator? Where you were speaking to somebody, you had to speak to somebody who didn't speak your language, so you had a translator with you. Has anybody ever been in that situation? You? That translator, so a couple of you have, had, have spoken with translators. The job of the translator is to take a language spoken or written in one language and restate it in another language. The translator isn't supposed to make up his own thing. He is simply supposed to relay what's said in one language in another language. When I was a teenager in youth group, I went on a missions trip to Uruguay uh, to help some missionaries carry on a VBS program. During the trip, I was able to teach two or three different times. I can't remember how many times it was, but it was a couple of times at least. And the problem was, in Uruguay, people speak Spanish. And they, have, they even have their own little type of Spanish. It's not the same kind of Spanish that you'd have in Mexico. It's a little different, even though it's mostly the same. Um, and I don't know Spanish. I only speak English. I can kind of discern a little bit of Greek, but that's pretty much it, just because I learned it a little bit in college. But if I were to teach in Uruguay in English without a translator, the people would be looking at me, but having no idea what in the world I'm talking about. So I had an interpreter restating everything that I was saying in English only in Spanish so that the people could understand. Without that translator, the message that I was speaking would have remained a mystery to everyone in the room. And a good translator will do his very best to translate my intended message into the language of the audience. Now imagine this. I'm standing in front of an audience telling people about Jesus. Only the translator, instead of telling the people my message in their language, he decides to obscure my message and tell the people his own message. Nobody would know the difference. Nobody knows what the translator, that the translator is saying something that I'm not saying. I'm talking about Jesus and he's reciting recipes for fruit salad or telling them about the weather forecast for the following week or whatever else he might want to say. The people don't know that that he's saying something different than what I'm saying. I don't know that he's saying something other than what I'm saying because he's obscuring it. He's a translator unfaithfully performing his duty. And this would accurately depict a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who knows what's true about himself but represents himself in an altered fashion. Just like this translator, he knows what I'm saying. He can understand what I'm saying. But he's telling the people something different. He's altering it for his own agenda, for his own purposes, whatever that might be. And let me be straight. The church at large, very often, instead of breeding honest, transparent people who love each other, even in the midst of clear faults and failures, breeds hypocrites. And we should take to heart a little bit of what the outsiders say, because a church is a place where often there are a lot of hypocrites. And here's how. We should not turn away their rebuke just because we think, oh, they just don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. That's true, sometimes, perhaps most of the time. But also, there is a little bit of truth in what they say. 
In a church, there are many different types of people from many different backgrounds who live many different ways. Thank God. And each of these people think that their ways are the best ways to live. If you are not like them, you are wrong. And they let sometimes these people let you know it. You don't do things this way, so you're wrong. Do it my way. They put you down for who you are and for who you're not. Sometimes you're not something that they wish you were. So you feel belittled. You feel belittlement rather than camaraderie. Rejection rather than acceptance. Slander rather than encouragement. Scathing criticism rather than godly exhortation. And excommunication rather than love. Even over foolish things like the color of the carpet, the setting on the thermostat, the type of food we bring to lunch. Ouch. Or more personally, the type of music we listen to, how many times a week we come to church, whether or not you were born or raised in this general vicinity, or how you raise your children. That's not even branching out into the true sin struggles that are present in everybody's lives. We all struggle with something. And these are things that the church should be huddling around a person to support them and edify them rather than ostracizing them. And a person gets the drift really quickly that a church is not going to show Christ's love to them So what do they do? They alter their life's trajectory. They know that nobody in the church is going to alter their trajectory to love them and reach out to them. They know that they're not going to be brought into a familial relationship the way they are. So they change them. They change how they appear in the church. They alter their own appearance. When they're around the church, they use the right words. They give the right answers. They wear the right clothes. They avoid talking about certain subjects that might separate them from the larger uh, things that are accepted by the church. They carry fake smiles as though they really loved being around the people there. And they become hypocrites. Because they know that there's not much love. They haven't seen it. They haven't felt it. They haven't received it. So in order to be accepted, they change their appearance. Not because that's who they are, but that's the only way they feel like they'll ever be accepted by the people they're around. And we cannot be a church that breeds hypocrites. We must love the sinner. We must never believe That we, I, am the only valid part of this body. We must never believe that our gifts are the best gifts. We must honor the brotherhood. Because the brotherhood is the body of Christ. And it's supposed to be diverse. It's supposed to be that way. We're not all supposed to be the same. We're all supposed to be different. If there is a hypocrite among us, Their blood must not be on our shoulders because we fail to show them Christ's love. It must be their own. 
and we must try to bring them out of it. But it must not be our fault because we failed to love. We must show Christ's love to all men and women. A Christ who, being God, became mortal and suffered death, all in pursuit of a group of mongrels who are nothing like Him and utterly detestable, having no loveliness of their own. Christ's way does not create hypocrites. Putrefied falseness in our love that says, be like me or you'll never fit in, does create hypocrites. We must not be like that. We must be like Christ. Who being the holy other, so far beyond our comprehension of holiness and righteousness, but yet He wanted fellowship and intimacy with each person here. That's who we must be like. We may not be like everybody here, but we welcome, we accept, we love. We do what we can to bring people in. Not just so that they can feel rejected because of their lifestyle, but so that we can edify, build up, love, cherish. So that people don't need to feel the need to be something different when they're with us. If we're going to be accepting of of them. How many of us in this very room are afraid to let people know who you really are? I am at times, I confess. Not just here, but in past places with past relationships. I think it's natural to people to, to at some point, to, to some degree, please those who are around. And there's a bit of this in me, after all. Isn't it the pastor that's supposed to have it all together at all times? He's supposed to be good at everything? He's supposed to have all the gifts? <laughs> right? Isn't that in the Bible? No, it's not. And there are parts of me that I don't feel like I want to reveal to everybody that I meet. Simply because I don't have faith that I will be well received. And how many of you share the same fear? Even in this own small group of people. How many of you are fully known in all your fallen beauty by everybody in this room, willfully? Oh, it's exciting. I get, to, I get to reveal to everybody here everything that I'm struggling with. How many of you are ready to reveal the deepest parts of yourself with your family here at Peniel? I don't think anybody would raise their hand if I actually asked for a raise of hands. We need to work hard to create a church founded upon the love of Christ that breeds honesty, transparency, because of uncommon, purifying love. And we have talked thus far about the needs of the church at large, and a little bit about our own church, that would facilitate a body that's free from hypocrisy. But we must now talk about the fruits of hypocrisy on a more individual basis. A person who is free from hypocrisy is as he appears to be. However, a hypocrite is somebody who is not what he appears to be. Since the hypocrite is carefully presenting what would typically be a better version of himself, that would be more fitting in his current context. Jesus tells us about one type of a hypocrite in Matthew chapter 6 that we just read here. In verse 1, let me read this. Take heed, 
that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And in this verse, we see the reversal of the intent of this secret place of charity. This reversal results in hypocrisy, which receives no reward from God. Jesus charges us that we do not participate in charitable deeds with the intent of being seen and praised by men. When you do a work of charity, you're trying to help somebody. Or perhaps your work of charity is simply offering your tithes and offerings. You're trying to aid the ministry. Perhaps you're dropping some coins in a bucket. Perhaps you're writing a check for somebody to fix their car. Whatever it is, that's supposed to be a help to that person. But hypocrisy turns that around, and really, what you're doing is you're purchasing adoration for yourself. You turn it into a transaction where you are the beneficiary, according to your value. Yeah, you're helping them, you may be sacrificing some money, but you're also benefiting from this, because you're getting adoration as a hypocrite. And this is why you're doing it. Because you want to feel good about yourself, and you want other people to feel good about you. Jesus also includes here the implication that when we are charitable in sincerity and simplicity, keeping it an activity performed in secret, known only to the need-to-knows, which is God, me, and whoever might be a necessary participant in that transaction, we indeed receive reward from our Father in heaven. Because let's be honest, you can't always give something anonymously. When you can, you should strive to. As we'll see further down, as he goes to, he teaches us great lengths that we should go to keep this in secret, to keep this quiet. So be something between you, God, you and God, and perhaps that other person. But he does say that we will indeed receive reward from our Father in heaven. Now we must not be afraid to look forward to God's reward. Because sometimes we can see this as, well, if I'm doing it for a reward from God, am I still not being selfish? And I used to think that. And I still struggle with it a little bit. But if God is telling us that there is reward, then it is something that's worth wanting. And we ought not feel vain for wanting it. The pursuit of gain is only vanity when that pursuit is first and foremost for earthly temporal gain. But the reward that God offers us is heavenly reward, which is worth considering above all earthly things. And just like Peter, when the Lord showed him this vision of animals being brought down in a net, a mixture of unclean and clean animals, and saying, kill and eat, we must be like Peter, and we must not call unclean what the Lord has called clean. When the Lord tells us something is worth going after, then we must believe him and say that's worth going after. When a man marries the wife of his youth, he knows what advantages are coming with marriages over the, over, with marriage over the coming years. But those advantages are not the reason that he marries his wife. He marries his wife because he loves her. And in marrying her, he receives the love of his life for life. Even though he knows all the advantages that come 
from this life that they're going to spend together. But yet, he pursues first and foremost primarily because of the love that he has for that spouse he's about to marry. When we pursue the reward from God, it is not because we just want the advantages, but because we're pursuing a God who we love and who has loved us, knowing full well the advantages that also come with walking with Him. And what, do we, and what here do we see gains the reward of heaven? Sincere, secret charity that is done for the benefit of only the one receiving the goodwill, that person that you are reaching out to. When you are sincerely just trying to benefit that person in front of you, because you see a need and you have had compassion on that person, and you do what you can to help aid that person, without any thought for your own adoration, without any thought for selfish gain, or thanks, or reward from man, this sincerity is what lays up for, your treasure, for you treasures in heaven. And technically here in verse 1, the word used for charitable deed in the New King James, perhaps you have a translation that uses a different word. Technically, this word that's used in verse 1 is a different word than what's used in verses 2, 3, and 4. The word in verse 1 is actually just a word that means the works of righteousness. We don't technically see charitable deed in the original language until verse 2. And verse 1 acts as a type of introduction into this portion of Jesus' sermon where he's discussing sincere righteousness without hypocrisy. So we must understand this, that Jesus in verse 1 is really starting this sermon, starting this portion of his sermon by saying anything and everything that we do in the name of God must be in sincerity. It must not be for selfish gain. It must not be for the adoration of people. And in verse 2, he gives a testing example. This is when he really starts talking about this true charity. Verse 2 says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And this, this verse here illustrates a person who, as he's preparing to give alms to the poor or put his tithe into the temple treasuries, or perform other ty- some other type of charitable gift, would see to it that there was a ruckus <laughs> around him so that he could attract the attention of as many people as he could. People need to know that I'm giving. People need to know that I'm generous. People need to see my righteousness so that they can see me as a righteous person. And you know the quote, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a noise? <laughs> I saw something on Facebook that said something similarly to kind of um, tailing that, that said, if you do something good and forget to talk about it on Facebook, was it really good? (laughs) I mean, how many times have you looked at Facebook and people are just talking about good stuff they're doing? People just need to know about it. People need to know about the good things that are happening around that I'm, you know, the, the good parenting that I'm doing. This good thing that I did, how, how involved I am at church, this thing I did in the, in the society, this experience that I had where I had a really good reaction. People need to know about it. 
How many times do you go on Facebook and see people talking about their sins? Their failures, their screw-ups. No, people want you to see the good. People want you to think that they're good. Our modern culture is not so different than the culture in which Jesus is talking. People still want to get attention when they do something good. At least eventually, maybe we understand that it's unreasonable and a little obvious to make mention of everything that we do. But as long as we eventually get some credit, we're okay with that. As long as we get some credit for what we do, that's okay. And Paul echoes this thought in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, that Rich read earlier. He says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I have, becoming, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In this love chapter, as it's often called, this love chapter is smack dab in the middle of a discussion about how people should, should use their gifts to edify the church, to help people, to help the church, build up the church with their spiritual gifts. Everybody wanted the gift of tongues because it's this miraculous gift that everybody could see. Clear representation that the Spirit is upon you. Everybody wanted it. He's saying here, Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And I've always been taught that that simply means you're becoming really annoying. But I wonder if he's just echoing Jesus over in Matthew chapter 6, where he's talking about these people. When they're doing good for people, they make sure people know about it. They sound the trumpets in the streets so that the people will come and see the thing that's about to happen. And then the person waves their money up in the air, drops it before the poor or in the offering plate, so that the people might see their goodness, their righteousness. And I wonder in 1 Corinthians 13 if that's simply just saying, if you're just doing, if you're, if you're speaking with the tongue of men and angels but have not love, you're just trying to get attention. If it's not for love for the people that you're helping, or for the glory of God, then what other option is there? Where is your love focused? It's right here. If you don't sincerely love that person with burning compassion and love and you're passionate about the glory of God, where else can your love reside other than yourself? You're just trying to get attention with this external gift And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have any love, I'm nothing. None of that's worth anything to God. Like he's saying here, you you have no reward from God in all of this. Even though your abilities, even though what you're accomplishing is far beyond anything that anybody else has has ever accomplished. But yet it's nothing to God, even though it might be everything to man. In verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, all of them, you just, you sell everything, literally everything. You cash out. You give everything to the poor. And though what? I give my body to be burned. I mean, how many Christians have been burned at the stake in 
in the past? How many Christians have sacrificed their lives because of the gospel that they refuse to refuse? But yet he says, you know, we praise those people. We write books about those people. But he's saying if it's not for love, it doesn't profit me anything. Not before God. You might have a book written about you, a missionary book about how great your ministry was and how you sacrificed everything for the cause of Christ. But if it was done in the earthliness, the fleshliness of human ambition, and the desire to just feel righteous, the desire to just feel right, the desire to have praise and power among men, it's nothing to God, even though you might be burned at the stake, even though you might cash out and sell everything and give it to the poor. It's worth nothing. Because it wasn't sincere. It didn't come from a secret place. It wasn't in love. You're simply trying to get something for yourself. Just a transaction. And he says in that in Matthew six at the end of chapter at the end of verse two, he says, Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. But what is their reward? Exactly the thing they were trying to get. They get praised. They get adoration. Maybe it helps elevate their status in society. But what good is that when the end of time comes? Verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is telling us when we operate, when we do good, Pay no attention whatsoever, even to your own self. You can't, I mean, he's using an illustration here. Your hands don't know anything, okay? (laughs) They're not intelligent beings. But he's saying, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't let the attention be within yourself. You don't even realize what you're doing. You're just, you have compassion on this person and you're serving them. That's it. There's no other side track that you're on. There's nothing else that you're trying to achieve out of all of this. You see somebody in need and you just help them. Sincerity, simplicity. This is the type of charity that God is calling us to, not complexity. I mean, this is just one of the things that me and Kristen decided a long time ago. We don't like offering checks to the church because we don't want the government to get involved in all of it. We don't want tax benefits. We want it to be simple. Simplicity. And this is not something that I'm saying is a biblical concept that everybody has to do. That's just a conviction that me and Kristen have. So we give differently because we don't want it to be, oh, if you do it this way, then you'll get tax benefits and all these types of things. Fooey. Do good. Care about the person you're doing good for or the ministry that you're doing good for and let that be enough. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Nobody else needs to know about this. Not even within your own members <laughs> should there be any knowledge of the righteousness that's going on. This is just about you sharing the love of Christ. That's it. If we're going to plan something around our charitable deed, it should be the planning of just how we can make sure that there's no boasting in the flesh. How can we make this as secret as possible so there can be no boasting, so that nobody's going to praise me? So there's nothing that I have among people that raises my status. 
Because it's not about me. I just love this person and I want to give to them. And I love God and I just want Him to be glorified. And I just want to worship Him and thank Him for all the goodness that He's given to me. Simple. Sincere. Unhindered by selfish ambition. Let all things be done without selfish ambition. The Bible says. Why? Because we want verse 4. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. We want God. We want God. The one who has loved me. The one that I love to be the only one that I boast in. This is of God. That's my only boast in life. We want this charitable transaction to simply be one of those pieces of God's love given to mankind where He receives the glory. Look at Luke chapter 14. We'll look at a couple passages here and then we'll be done. I'm not going to talk much about these because they're pretty... They speak for themselves. Luke 14, 12 through 14. Then he, Jesus, also said to him who invited him to a supper, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is, is telling these people that are with him, the Pharisees and whoever else might be there, being invited by this host. And really, this is a rebuke. Because this man that invited Jesus, he's seeking status. I mean, this is why people, I mean, people still do it today. Politicians, anybody running for an office. They hold banquets, not because they want to bless people, but because they want to get their political agenda going or whatever it is. They want to, you know, mingle, build their business. There's an ulterior motive. I mean, everybody knows it going into it, so it might be a little different than this. But Jesus is saying, don't invite the people that you know will pay you back. Don't bless the people who you know will bless you back. I mean, there's a reward in that, I guess. When they bless you back, you receive your reward. But there's no reward from the Father in it. You get reward from the Father when you bless those who cannot bless you back, or will not bless you back. That's the point Jesus is saying here. That's why he's saying, invite the poor, maimed, and the lame, and the blind. He's not telling you to cancel your plans for Thanksgiving, okay? To have your family over and have a festival and a feast. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is... Don't do things just so that you can be part of this earthly transaction process where you give and you take and you give and you take so that you can build your life here on this earth. Don't, do your chari- don't bring your charitable deeds into that type of a transaction process so that somehow you get back. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
if you know that there's some sort of um, receipt along with what you're doing, then you can tell yourself, I have received my reward. If I'm doing something and I know I'm going to get something back, you can tell yourself, I have received my reward and my reward ends here. But if you sacrifice in a way where you're never going to be repaid, perhaps not even thanked, that's when you can know my reward's in heaven. That's when you know you're banking it on high. When there is nothing that you're getting from this, no attention, no praise, no reward here on this earth. Because when you do, that's all you get. But when you perform your righteousness, your charity, only for the glory of God and the good of that person, with no intention of being repaid in any way, that's when that's up in heaven. And then to close, Matthew chapter 25, look, look real quickly. Verses 30, starting in verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what's he basing this off of? What's he basing this blessedness off of? This eternal reward. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? See the sincerity and the response there? They didn't even know they were doing it. In verse 39, Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren... You did it to me. The least of my brethren. Not the greatest. The least. In verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. On what basis are these people cursed? On what basis do these people receive eternal fire and damnation? Verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Sincere charitable deeds. These are the light of Christ that is born within us when we are become a believer, a true believer. We cannot not do good. And when we're hypocrites, we act as the unjust, just getting more for ourselves on this earth. And see, God knows. See, he, he said in Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 6, your father who sees in secret 
will himself reward you only, openly. And you, can, you can broaden that to say, the Father who sees in secret will divide among us those who shall inherit eternal life and those who shall not. Because he sees in secret. Okay? Your confession of faith may have been open for everybody to see. Your baptism may have been around hundreds and thousands of people. But the Father who sees in secret knows the truth that's going on inside of you. Like Simon the sorcerer. He wanted to do great miracles. Just like Peter and Paul. Or whoever it was in that passage. And he said, please, let me give me this gift. I'll pay you money. And what did they say? <laughs> you are a wicked person. Because you thought that the gift of God could be gained through money. Why did he want it? Because he was a guy who liked attention. He was a guy who liked doing things that were big. Mysterious. And yeah, maybe he loved the message that they were preaching. A message of love and hope and greatness. In God's eyes. But he wanted something that he could perform that made him feel good about himself. And that made him look good to everybody. So he was referred to as a wicked person. And they charged him, they rebuked him. Lest he enter into the flame. God sees in secret. He sees the secret place. And we in our secret place, that represents the truest form of ourselves, must be sincere before God. So that the only thing we have, the only intention we really have is the glory of God, just responding to His love and thankfulness and giving to the needy because they need. Not because it helps me in some way, but because they need something that I can help them with. Sincerity, simplicity. This is what should be found in our secret place. Particularly according to this message in how we perform charity, our good deeds that we give to share with other people. Sincere, simple, not full of all these rules and regulations. Not with a large, loud ruckus to make sure that everybody knows what you're doing. Not with these little, little uh, statements in conversation that lead the conversation around to looking at what you did. That's not sincere. That's not simplicity in charity. Let it be enough that you're glorifying God. You're serving God through giving to the least of these. Lord, you are good to us and you have given to us vastly beyond measure, beyond anything we could deserve, Lord, for we are just a group of sinners, worms, who have been saved by grace and transformed into something beautiful by your mercy and by your grace alone. Not because of the accumulation of good deeds performed throughout our years, I pray that you would receive the glory in all the things that we do. And that when we are insincere and lack simplicity in the good that we perform, that you would convict our hearts so that step by step we may be conformed into your image, that we may become simpler and more sincere. Because we live in a culture, we live in a society where everybody just wants to get what they want. Lord, and Lord, that builds up, if we're not careful, in our own hearts, where we just want to get, get, get. I pray that you would clear us away, purify us, Lord, by your love. 
And forgive us for our insincerity where there is darkness yet to be expelled by your light. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.